Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. Reducing financial anxiety for people is extremely important for everyone. Today's environment you know, particularly highlights that. Having a bank account can do a lot to give people peace of mind that their money is safe and they have a way to access it when they need it without having to pay those higher fees to alternative financial providers. That was Elena Whistler, the SVP of Sales and Relationship Management at The Clearinghouse, and I'm your host, Greg Myers. This is our recap episode where we're going to look back at the last five episodes about financial inclusion. And of course, we're starting with Elena Whistler from The Clearinghouse. The Clearinghouse is a banking association and payments company that is governed by about 23 of the largest financial institutions in the United States. They move money through wires, ACH, and check images, and maybe are most known for their RTP network, which is the nation's newest payment system that provides instant clearing and settlement of payments here in the United States. Before we dive into the episode, I want to give a special thanks to The Clearinghouse for sponsoring Financial Inclusion Month. To learn more about The Clearinghouse, just visit www.theclearinghouse.org. Let's move on to a couple of segments from my conversation with Elena. To set the stage for the audience, when you hear the words financial inclusion, what does that term mean to you and to The Clearinghouse? Yeah, I think the term financial inclusion probably means the same thing to me as it does to the clearinghouse in general. When I think of financial inclusion, I think of providing access to the banking system to individuals who currently don't have it. And more importantly, perhaps when I hear financial inclusion, I think of the things that are not possible without that access. So without a bank account, the unbanked having a difficult time simply to receive a payment or make a payment, manage their bills or their budget. And they often have to rely on alternative financial products and services, which can be more costly. They also have trouble establishing credit, which is extremely important if someone wants to get a loan for a car or house. And it adds financial stress to individuals who often have a lot of financial stressors to begin with. Um, So further exacerbating their, their situation. For the Clearinghouse, which works closely with our governing banks and many other financial institutions, financial inclusion and access to the banking system is an important priority and is a shared goal of the private, nonprofit, and government sectors. We do see firsthand that bank accounts also allow individuals to receive government benefit payments quickly, such as the economic impact payments made by the federal government during the pandemic as well as child tax credits. And having access to products and services offered by financial institution also allows households to avoid more costly alternative financial products and services that I mentioned previously, as well as building wealth. So that's a bit of a definition or roundup. Okay. Well, what would you say are the biggest challenges that the unbanked and underbanked face? Yeah, that's a great question. Last year, we actually, along with five other banking and credit union organizations, we conducted and released a paper that outlined this topic. So talking about the challenges of the unbanked and underbanked. The paper is called Delivering Financial Products and Services to the Unbanked and Underbanked in the United States, so Challenges and Opportunities. 
it's available on our website. Feel free for anyone to go reach out to it at theclearinghouse.org. So what the paper outlines is a number of ideas of those challenges. So the perception or reality that they don't have enough money to meet the minimum balance requirements. The challenge to trust financial institutions in general, so either coming from another area or another country, so that challenge of trust. And then the barriers with proper identification, perhaps languages, or even reachability, so talking about being disconnected from mainstream systems, including the internet. So what I think we can all agree is there's no single reason, right, for households and individuals to be unbanked. And we can't really address all of them with one large initiative. And we think that more targeted approaches for the varying situations, be it trust or education or access or what tends to be most successful. You recently wrote a blog in in August titled How Earned Wage Access Will Help Employers Through the Big Quit. So can you connect the dots between earned wage access, the RTP network and the clearinghouse kind of pull all that together for us? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. And, you know, I'm really excited to see this movement going forward as we look at how many moves here in the country. At the clearinghouse, we are very focused on ensuring that the banking industry has access to the RTP network, which is the network we provide. And, and I mentioned we launched actually almost five years ago. And it facilitates the movement of money in a faster way. And so if we think about that, the RTP network enables real-time posting. It allows all federally insured U.S. depository financial institutions access to the network. So they're eligible and encouraged to participate. And the heart of this network is to facilitate that real-time transaction activity to and from bank accounts here in the U.S., So that's what the Clearinghouse is very focused on. And what we've seen in the industry is a transformation of how people are getting paid. So how businesses, small and large, are beginning to look at their employee base and determine how best to pay them based upon the activity that they have. The real-time payments on the RTP network is available for consumers and small businesses and, and large corporates. And we move money 24 hours a day, seven days a week with immediate confirmation that the payment is sent and received and posted. And I say all this because it kind of gives the the backdrop to when you think about people getting paid in today's environment for the work that they've done, they want to get paid when they did the work. We have a traditional cycle, a payroll cycle which works just fine for certain industries, but for others, particularly for contractors, for, you know, seasonal workers, for other activities, they might need to get paid and should get paid when they did their work and their function. And so the term earned wage access is very much to facilitate people getting paid for the work they did and they are able to, you know, pull those funds when they need to pull it. And and it puts the control, if you think about it, on the employees so they can budget their finances even a little bit tighter. So we, we, you know, have the term traditionally living paycheck to paycheck, and that is because of the payroll cycle. Well, can we flip it on its head and say, you have access to your funds when you need it so you can pay in smaller increments the bills that you need to pay. So we do see that revolution or the evolution on payroll, payroll on demand, sometimes people say, and and particularly, you know, the gig economy that is managing more on a contractor 
payouts. We see that growing significantly on the RTP network today. So companies such as Paychex, Daily Pay, Digit, Venmo, PayPal, even, you know, wallets and rideshare providers such as Grubhub and, and others, they are allowing their employees to pull their payroll, their earned wages when they need it. So we see that and we see that high volume growth on the RTP network, which to me is exciting because that's not originally what the RTP network was designed for back five years ago or more, but is now in a growing volume base. In part, I think, you know, the pandemic made that happen. People needed their funds more readily and the payroll providers are making that available, which I think is really exciting. On episode 189, I spoke with David Rocha from Prosperous. Prosperous is known as the financial inclusion company. It enables lenders to instantly qualify anyone on earth for credit using only the anonymized, non-biased, and consumer-consented data from their smartphones. There are over 4 billion underbanked or unbanked people in the world, including 90 million in the United States, and 70% of them have a mobile phone. Prosperous isn't changing the way people get credit. They're changing the fundamentals behind it. They have built a two-sided marketplace. One side includes people or micro-businesses looking for credit. And the other, of course, are the lenders. Here's David talking about the Prosperous business model and what makes it unique. I think that there's a couple things that make it unique. One is the control for, well, I would say the better way of saying it is we use only first-party data. So the data that we enable lenders to access is all with consumer consent. And that's all the data we use. We don't pull third-party data and try to pull it together and run some machine learning around it and then send it to lenders. We're not a bureau. And this is part of that early framework that we put together where the consumer has full control of who has access to their data, how it's being used, and can revoke that access. I would say that's part one of what makes us different. And it starts with a mindset. It's not our information. It's the consumer's information and who they choose to share it with and how they choose to use that data is up to them, not to us. And then second, I'd say what makes us different is we don't use demographic data. So we don't, in our platform, incorporate the typical data for at least the credit assessment part that you would see in traditional models. So if you look at the data set that we have incorporated into the models, it's not easy to discern, are they a man? Are they a woman? Where do they live? How much do they make? The typical things that really only serve to bias models against a population. So you've seen this here in the US when the first alternative models based on bank transactions or social media data were used, where they unfairly scored women, entrepreneurs, and minorities. They had what looked like a good profile for credit. They were a good risk, but alternative data models only serve to exacerbate the problem and continue to exclude them from the credit market. So we wanted to avoid that. And you're not creating any type of scoring at all, right? We do. What we deliver is a probability of non-payment score that's based on essentially a psychometric score of that individual. So will they be a responsible borrower or an irresponsible borrower? That's what we added to the platform above the consent and data management part of it. You provide sort of a and I don't know marketplace is the right word, but the ability for lenders to see these consumers. And I guess I'm trying to think of a good analogy of what exists today where 
a consumer wants a loan and then the banks can see the opportunity or the lenders can see the opportunity. So you're providing sort of leads. We're not really changing the way that people get access to credit. We're changing the fundamentals behind it. And so we're very similar to Credit Karma, but we've built a marketplace in Latin America with the largest telco in the region. And we're connecting there close to 300 million consumers. These are users that are looking for individual credit. They're looking for credit for small business. And we allow them to go into their phone, enter the super app that the telcos launched, request a credit, then be provided with options for who can offer them that credit based on fit. And then it's a one-to-one connection between the lender they select and them. And then they can continue the process and get that credit, many of them for the first time. The difference between what Credit Karma offers and what we offer is we don't use third-party data. And anyone, I mean anyone with a smartphone, can be evaluated for credit. We're not limited by the typical data sets, which are, do you have a bank account? Do you have employment data that you can pass us? Do you have a bureau record? None of those things, which were typically exclusionary for a large part of the population in the U.S., and certainly a large part of the population, the greatest part of the population in Latin America, apply anymore. On one side of the marketplace, because it's a two-sided marketplace, you have the demand for credit, again, from a large swath of the population that's never had access to credit. And on the other side, you have lenders who sign up to viralize their credit products with the largest consumer population in Latin America. Moving on to episode 190, where I spoke with Ken Weber, the head of Ripple Impact and vice president of social impact and sustainability for Ripple. Ripple is fundamentally a fintech that uses new innovative technologies such as blockchain and crypto to improve financial services. They are focused on real-world use cases to create value for businesses, for example, cross-border payments. Here's Ken talking about Ripple Impact's four pillars of focus, as well as a deeper look into how Ripple is helping with financial inclusion. It encompasses four areas of focus. First and foremost, we do what we can to engage our employees in getting involved in social and environmental impact. That could be at the community level, where our employees live and work. But we're also putting in front of them generous donation matching, lots of opportunities to volunteer, and we try to put cause-related content in front of employees, both live and virtually, around the big global issues and the issues that we care about as a company. The second pillar is around the application of financial technology to accelerate and expand financial inclusion globally, and I can say more about that later. The third pillar that we focus on is sustainability and climate. We are a company that cares very much about the fight to limit climate change, to mitigate climate change. It's one of the big issues of the day. And finally, Ripple Impact is responsible for our research and innovation programs. And mostly those are encompassed in something called UBRI, which stands for the University Blockchain Research Initiative. And that is a network of some 50 universities globally business schools, engineering schools, law schools, all of whom are creating courses and doing technology development innovation around blockchain and crypto and fintech in general. And how did you end up in this leadership role of Ripple Impact? I've been working at the intersection of tech and innovation and social and environmental impact for most of my career. I was lucky enough to know some of the Ripple founders and builders, and they asked me to come and work with other Ripplers on setting up this university research and innovation network. And over the course of working on that for about a year, I became involved in some of the more 
traditional sort of corporate philanthropic activities. And about five years ago, very early for a company of Ripple's size and stage, we decided to formalize Ripple's focus on impact and to create a team internally that worked on these three or four areas of focus. And today we're going to focus on one of those pillars that you mentioned. Obviously, that's financial inclusion. So how does financial inclusion fit into what the company is doing? So it's very central to what we do. Part of Ripple's founding idea was actually to democratize financial services. Our founder, Chris Larson, sometimes talks about making globalization work for everyone, completing globalization. So what we're doing from a business standpoint is improving both individual and household economics through things like faster, cheaper, more reliable remittances. But we're also doing what we can through philanthropic funding, and partnerships with nonprofits, central banks, universities, and even the Vatican. Generally, partners who are interested in finally moving the needle on financial inclusion with big, bold applications of fintech. This stuff is hugely important to our founder, Chris Larson, as mentioned, but it's also important to our board, our CEO, Brad Garlinghouse, and the entire leadership team. And we have a great swell of grassroots support within the rank and file of Ripple employees, many of whom are actively involved in this work. From our point of view, there are nearly 4 billion adults who are either underbanked, including hundreds of millions of migrant workers, or entirely unbanked, including many who are temporarily unbanked because of conflicts or climate change. We're realistic about the role of fintech and the role of one fintech in turning the tide on such a persistent and sizable problem like financial exclusion. But we believe that for the people in the middle, the bankable adults in the middle, there's a lot that can be done to improve their livelihoods and their participation in the formal financial system. And for the top quarter or third, if you will, of the one and a half to 1.7 billion who are considered unbanked, we think that there are pathways into formal financial services, many of which are enabled by blockchain and cryptocurrency. It sounds like the whole financial inclusion within the company is kind of built into the culture. It really is. One of the ways that Ripple's impact work is different from some of our peer companies in the crypto space is that we don't have a separate standalone foundation that is responsible for promoting the protocol and the products and services associated with the business. We are a team that is small and inside the company. We're integrated into everything that the company does. And literally everyone within the company is a collaborator and is welcome to participate and contribute to the impact work that we're doing. There are, of course, independent foundations that champion the XRP ledger and XRP, the development community full of engineers and entrepreneurs who are using XRP Ledger to build their businesses and products and services. But we're very much focused on how we can leverage and extend Ripple's products and services and how we can further apply philanthropic resources and talent and time, subject matter expertise and passion to these use cases through our employees. We also have sort of an ecosystem worldview. XRP Ledger is our preferred blockchain and XRP is our preferred cryptocurrency. But we realize that this is a multi-chain world. There will be more than one blockchain that succeeds and that needs to succeed to build out a fully robust global blockchain and crypto ecosystem. We believe collaboration is necessary and good, particularly as you go after use cases that impact hundreds of millions or even billions of people. 
And now on to episode 191, where we feature Faster Payments Council Executive Director Reed Lutonen and National Consumer League Representative Gail Hillebrand. Together, they have more than 40 years of experience in the payments industry. The Faster Payments Council was founded in 2018 to bring about an inclusive governance framework to help achieve ubiquitous, safe, and easy-to-use faster payments. Gail has spent the majority of her time in consumer advocacy focused on protecting us consumers. The two of them agree faster payments can be a pathway to greater financial inclusion by removing risks and adding certainty to the transaction. In this segment, Reed is talking about the Faster Payments Council's Financial Inclusion Working Group. Impetus for this was that a number of our members identified a few different areas where the topics of faster payments and financial inclusion overlap with each other. So first, our members believe there's a strong possibility that faster payments can be a pathway to greater financial inclusion. When you remove risk and add certainty to transactions, you can potentially make a broader population of customers available to financial institutions while also making being banked more attractive to those customers. The question of access is a complicated one, but today there's a population of people who would be given an account if they walked into a bank branch today but who choose not to be banked. It could be because they've been burned by fees in the past, they prefer the certainty that comes with cash, which is, of course, the OG real-time payment, or myriad other reasons why a person would prefer to remain outside the formal banking system. There's also a population of people who, for one reason or another, are not currently eligible for a traditional checking account at some or even most financial institutions. The trouble is, at this point, participating fully in the economy and taking advantage of the technological revolution that has been brought on by the internet and apps and all the time-saving aspects of e-commerce, it's essential to be able to transact digitally to fully participate. So the trick with one group on the one hand is to make banks more attractive to them. And the trick with the other group is to identify ways to de-risk accounts such that a broader population of people are eligible to be banked. And so the mission of our work group here is to provide a blueprint for leveraging faster payments to accelerate access to the financial system for unbanked and underserved Americans. The Faster Payment Council launched a white paper in July, and in the following section, Gail outlines three of the main barriers to financial inclusion that were identified by the working group in this white paper. So we're going to dive deeper into three areas, trust, design, and fraud. And Gail, Reed, either one of you can jump in and add some more information on these, but let's start with trust. So maybe tell us a little more, Gail, what you mean by trust. With the issue of trust and confidence, we are really looking at how much people will feel that if they use the system, it's going to work for them, at least as well as all the other ways that they pay. We were able to identify the big issue as uncertainty there. There's some excellent work by the FDIC looking at why people are unbanked, including people who are unbanked, but were previously banked and gave up their bank account because it didn't work for them. And they identified fees, both absolute level of fees, but also the uncertainty about what fee costs would be in the future as a key barrier for people who didn't want a bank account. And we translated that over and thought it was also going to be a key barrier here. The uncertainty for a small business about infrastructure costs to change to a new system and the uncertainty for a consumer about what's it going to cost later after I get everything set up for it. With respect to that one, our recommendation for action is pretty simple. Fees should be low, they should be simple, and they should change slowly so that once people have signed up, they're not facing a constant change. We also identified customer service as a key element in building trust, confidence, and certainty. 
And we thought it was really important that that customer service be what we called omni-channel, that it be available in the app so you can do it right there, but that it also be available by phone and that there are times where you need to talk to a real person. And that especially comes up if people have experienced any kind of a disruption, delay, uncertainty about where their money is and whether it went to the right place. That's when you need to talk to a real person. We also recommended that customer service be multilingual. And across the whole industry, people are talking about the fact that if the payment is 24-7, the customer service is also going to have to be 24-7. And then can you speak to the second barrier, design? Yes. This was really, in some ways, a pretty fundamental insight. We talked to some advocates, people working with low-income families. And one of them said to us, you know, people expect my customers to use this product, but it hasn't been designed for them as the primary user. And so if someone is using it to pay bills, they may have very different needs than if they're just using it to send a birthday present or to split a bill or some kind of discretionary thing. If you're using it for your obligations, you may need some different design features. If you're using it to send family members money in an emergency, Instead of just because you can, you may need a different level of reliability. And we recommend that anyone who wants to really bring in these new populations needs to do user research on those populations, just like you would on any other target customer, needs to do testing before and after deployment, not only to see how you want to serve that customer, but how the customer is really using the product afterwards to see if it's working as expected. We recommended simplicity in the platforms. I was on a panel recently with someone from Consumer Reports, and he said, that their research showed that when people are infrequent users, they come back in, the platform looks totally different and they're kind of like, where's my money? How do I use it? In tech, you know, we love to change things up all the time, but it may not be the best way to serve a customer who just wants to know where their money is and wants to use it the same way every time. We also recommended that the design could think about the values that people get from using cash and whether the product could mimic some of those benefits. And I'm not a big proponent of cash, but there are reasons why people use it that go beyond just anonymity. And they include that you can segregate it for budgeting. Another reason people use cash is you can give it away in small amounts to somebody to go and do a specific thing and not take the risk of exposing your whole balance. And so these are features that faster payments products could mimic and could offer similar benefits. And so we recommended people think long and hard about that one. And finally, design. In architecture, they say form follows function. Here, I think that the design in some way can influence what the function is and what the functionality is. And so we recommended a number of things in the design that might help to reduce the issue of mistake, to reduce the possibility that you type in the wrong phone number and send it to the wrong person. Those can be speed bumps and they can be designed by customer segment. Maybe your customers only need them when they're new customers. Maybe there's certain kinds of pattern analysis that can tell you what type of payment is more likely to be unusual. And that's where the customer could get a pop-up right there when they're arranging the send that says, did you really want to do this? Every month you send to Maria Garcia, but this time you're sending to M. Garcia, who lives in a different city, or something else that helps the customer to just double check before the send, because as you know, it's very hard to get the money back after you've sent it. So that's kind of what we recommend in design. Really think about this customer and their needs, how they want to manage their money and the kinds of people they pay, and to really design for that. Read anything to add there? I think the thing to keep in mind too is what Gail was kind of getting there at the end is if you include this kind of concept from the beginning as you're building your solution, it's not going to feel like something that's intrusive to the folks that you maybe were historically targeting with solutions and now you're trying to add on this other underserved population. If you're building something from the ground up with these philosophies in mind, it'll feel seamless 
to every user and that's better for everybody. And finally, let's discuss fraud. I know it's obviously a big issue. So Gail, maybe give us a little bit more detail around that topic. We identified fraud as the biggest issue and we're not the only ones who have done so. The Federal Reserve Board's research on who plans to use instant payments, they found that about 40% of people said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And for those folks, half of them said the reason was concerns about fraud. So we know on the one hand that people are concerned about fraud. We know on the other hand that a lot of people think that if it comes from your bank, it's going to be safe. And we've got a long tradition of people promoting zero liability policies and other things that cause consumers to think, if I'm doing it through my bank, I'll be able to fix a problem. But now we have this odd situation where if a person is a crook, and they steal your account credentials and steal from you, you can get your money back. But if they're a crook and they get you to send them money, it's not so clear that you can get your money back. That's not going to work with customers. If your money's been stolen, exactly how the crook did it is not that relevant to you. You still want your money back. So we looked at this question of what can be done about fraud. And fraud's an age-old problem, but we thought that there are some things that can be done on the front end with the sender, at the sender level, in terms of pattern analysis to see what kinds of payments are anomalous and might indicate fraud. And here's an example. If your customer has been sending the same amount of money every month to someone and suddenly they want to send 10 times that amount, that could be that they're helping a family member who has an emergency, but it could be it's a romance scam because that's how the scam works. You get people to send you small amounts of money and then you say, oh, my son needs surgery. I want to buy a plane ticket and fly to meet you. And I need a whole bunch more money. And people do send money in those circumstances. So a simple pop-up there that says, it's your money, you can do whatever you want. But this pattern has been associated with fraud for our other customers. Do you want to talk this over with a family member and come back in five minutes if you still want to do it? And other things of that sort. And this will be testing. There are a lot of smart techies in our country who can figure out how to design these pop-ups and warnings. We did, however, recommend that a whole bunch of the work is going to have to be done at the recipient's financial institution, because the individual senders and the individual sending FIs can't tell how often this is happening. And the place where that knowledge can be ascertained is at the network level and at the recipient level. So we thought there was going to have to be a lot more know your customer work related to knowing whether your customer is a crook, if you're a recipient financial institution, patterns of receipt analysis, velocity controls, how much money can come into a recipient account at one time. And we also recommended there's going to be a very big role for the networks, both the private networks and FedNow when it comes on, because they have an opportunity to see the whole system. And I think one of the challenges, and we only touch on this lightly in the report, is that the analysis and the data about what the frauds are is going to have to match the cycle time of the fraudsters. And fraudsters are fast, and they change their tactics often. And so we're going to have to figure out how to do the same. We also recommended both for a mistake and for fraud that there could be some remedies for consumers. And this is a big problem, but we think it's the one that needs to be addressed to really bring more people into the system that they can have confidence in and that will really work for them. And the final episode in our series features Jeannie Walden, the Chief Innovation Marketing Officer at Daily Pay. Daily Pay is a company focused on changing pay for good. Their objective is to look at ways they can create new solutions that have a positive impact on the entire financial system. In this section, Jeannie and I talk about financial inclusion as it relates to earned wage access and how more and more companies are offering that program. You mentioned some things in there that we often hear when we're talking about financial inclusion, which of course October is Financial Inclusion Month. 
and part of I think the challenge of the underserved, the unbanked, the underbanked is that sometimes they have to resort to payday loans or other non beneficial to their financial situation types of activities in order to just make ends meet. So I think companies have come along and started to offer the earned wage access program as a way to promote financial inclusion and, and I guess, financial well-being as a broader term. So can you talk a little bit about how businesses are doing that? Oh, absolutely. You know, look, earned wage access and what we do at Daily Pay is one piece of the financial inclusion puzzle. And it's great to have an entire month dedicated to it because it's desperately needed. You know, more visibility about financial information more training about how to plan finances and understand them so that you can avoid payday loans and get out in front of challenges, but also an understanding of what options are available for you when you run into an unexpected issue. And I think what Daily Pay does, what the Earn Wage Access category does, is it allows businesses, in Daily Pay's case, at no cost to the company, to offer their employees what I said earlier, this level of financial transparency that they've never had before. You know, the most commonly used feature on our daily pay app is the daily pay balance. And we see people checking their daily pay balance, how much money they've earned to date, more times than they check their bank account on a weekly basis. It makes sense to us because nobody wants to check their checking account as it continues to dwindle down, but everybody likes to check their daily pay account when they see that there's more and more money in there as you get closer to payday. And that transparency is the first time that hourly workers have been able to see the actual dollar amount that they've earned at any point in time. So that then opens up an opportunity for companies to do a lot of financial education. And while we have a lot of capabilities in our app to help people start creating a budget. Businesses are creating just really great solutions, really great training programs about financial literacy. You know, our partner at Visa creates a comic book that they send out into the schools because they know it'll make it home to the parents about financial literacy. And it takes an effort from all of us to create that level of financial viability and financial inclusion. And then on top of that, you know, a lot of the information that we share about usage with the companies that offer daily pay to their employees allows the business to create smarter financial types of programs and decisions in the future. And I'll give you a great example. One company that we work with, a lot of their salaried employees use daily pay. And we were giving them information about our savings feature and saying, hey, great news. Here's all these employees that are saving money as soon as they earn it using daily pay. And the business took a look at the data you know, in aggregate numbers, not necessarily proprietary information. And they said, wow, that's amazing because we have a very low percentage of engagement in our 401k program. And our 401k program has a match. So they were able to sit down with their employees and say, hey, look, if you're saving on daily pay, that's great. But if you put half of your money in daily pay, so it's liquid, and the other half in this 401k, we're going to match it. And that increases the amount you've saved by 50% automatically. And a lot of people didn't realize how 401k worked or how they could use it. So it's those types of inclusion and just transparency around financial information 
initiatives that really help to change just, you know, all of our lives for the better and then create that sense of education that can get shared with, you know, our friends and our family and our communities. We've heard from some great leaders in our industry talking about what our industry is doing to help with this global challenge of financial inclusion. We've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. Again, a special thanks to The Clearinghouse for sponsoring Financial Inclusion Month, and a special thanks to you, the listeners, and until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com, where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well. 